everyone. Welcome to another episode of One Vision. Today, we host Manoj Govindan, venture builder for Kashat Venture Studios, amongst many other hats that he's wearing. Now, the studio is, um, we would like to talk to Manoj a little bit about that to understand exactly what it is, amongst something else that he has going on. So let's just go dive in. Thank you so much for joining us. And let's talk about your background a little bit in particular. What is a venture builder? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, you know, I know we've had casual conversations uh, here and there, but uh, but not, uh, we really haven't sat down and had a chat. Of course, this will be very, very interesting, uh, even uh, without a, a, a pandemic on top of us. But uh, but I think the pandemic is putting an interesting layer on, on, on everything we're doing, including this podcast, I imagine. But background, just very quickly, um, I'll bring it up to uh, what I'm doing now, which is venture building. I'm a database engineer by background, so uh, I, um, against my wishes, my parents made sure that I um, uh, went to engineering, uh, became a, an engineer, and then you know did that thing for a couple of years, and then quickly realized that I'm better off um, uh, in the business space. Uh, which uh, really got me into consulting and M and A, and that that brought me into uh, financial services. And within financial services, I recognized the opportunity to help from within uh, the financial services organization, help them really uh, understand how to use startups as a catalyst for change and transformation within the enterprise. That really is the genesis of what is what we what i'm now referring to as venture building right so the idea of using startups as a catalyst for business uh, within uh, the enterprise um and that's that really i mean on the surface a lot of people have acknowledged that right so that that startups are uh, a good ingredient to think about business in a different way and change and all that good stuff but what is missing has usually been the mechanics of what, how that translates itself into the enterprise. And that is where venture building really became an exercise. So I literally put a, a name on top of a function that we built it organically within the bank, uh, banks that I was working at, uh, and, and we call venture building now, right? So what that involves essentially is when I say the op, it, it means the mechanics, literally we are getting into the operational stuff. So everything from, so back up, right? So the, the genesis of wanting to use startups as a catalyst is, at least for me, uh, is the idea that these large companies are spending an inordinate amount of money buying technology, but they seem to have very little leverage spending that money. Uh, or, or in the sense, they are literally at the mercy of whoever is selling them whatever they are selling, right? Cisco, IBM, Microsoft. And so my pitch to them is, what happens if you take back control of some of the spend that you're spending it based on your demand and your needs and, you, and you're connecting it a lot closer to that? And you can do so if you do that in, on, a, on a trial basis, right? rather than committing yourself to, which is what large uh, tech companies tend to do, they tend to want enterprises to commit to one year, two year, three year, 10 year uh, service agreements and, and you know, purchase agreements that literally lock these enterprises down. And, it, and how do you break away from that? So 
and, and startups was kind of the uh, kind of the genesis of that. So one, when that happens, though, you are fighting against. Again, this is the interesting analogy with um, a pandemic or you know a, a virus like this. You are fighting against the antibodies within the enterprise who are resistant to um, these kinds of changes because it alters the way they do business internally, right? So we're talking about mid-level supply chain people, mid-level finance people, mid-level, see where I'm going with this, right? So these are the folks who are literally the antibodies of this, of, of why and how these companies need really can impact the business in, in a granular way that allows for the business and the people who are delivering the business, you know, have the opportunity to, um, uh, to, to impact with that, with that technology. So that's what venture building is, so literally trying to figure out how to navigate, educate, and implement activities within the enterprise to mitigate this antibody effect to change. So let's talk about, you know, going from who you're impacting to where you're impacting. Um, today, you're focused on the studio that is sort of in between Georgia and Israel. But let's talk about the where a little bit, the innovation ecosystems. You work in startups and you work with partners in Atlanta, San Francisco in the Valley, here where I am, Tel Aviv, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Charlotte, London, New York. There's so many places that you've sort of worked with these companies. Um, tell us about your experience working in those different uh, regions and how this current pandemic kind of makes you think a little bit differently about the creation of those innovation hubs, those type of startups and those type of venture building uh, activities that you're talking about. How does that change your mindset? Sure. So again, let's, let's lay the foundation, right? So what has been happening pre-COVID, right, pre-pandemic is um, uh, for the 10, 12, 15 years that I've been doing this within large companies, uh, the idea is um, that you want to create a, a, an ecosystem where there is a what I would call a hub and spoke model, where it's demand driven, right? So it, instead of so traditionally startups, when uh, from Silicon Valley or from Tel Aviv or wherever else, they have had to build what they built in a vacuum and then figure out how to sell it to the enterprise. That has been kind of the traditional notion of, of building a startup. Uh, what we are doing here in, in venture building for the enterprise is the opposite, right? So we are flipping the script and we're basically saying we're, we're going to build and maintain an ecosystem, but we're going to start with the demand from within the corporation, identify. So there's mechanics again internally within the enterprise to identify the demand craft and present that demand in certain ways to the ecosystem. And that actually creates relationships between the enterprise and these ecosystems, right? Ecosystem being investors who are investing in the startups, the startups themselves, the research institutions that are around these ecosystems who can uh, make that match between the demand-driven uh, needs uh, to the startups and their technologies itself. 
And so that's literally how we've identified these ecosystems itself, right? Why are we going to Silicon Valley? Because not just because there's a bunch of uh, you know uh, awesome startups there. It's that the, an ecosystem exists there. There is a feedback loop that exists between the investors, the startups, and the research institutions there that is really looking forward uh, to how how to solve problems and how can how can that be accelerated and how can we invest in that. And, and, and get the leverage from that, right? So that's literally how we have identified these ecosystems and named them, right? Uh, any of them, Israel is another one, um, you know, the, the UK for, for its reasons. And I've subscribed over the years to this notion, you know, I, I've actually been very, I've cringed every time I hear people talk about Silicon Alley and Silicon Loop and Silicon Slope uh, and Silicon Harbor. And what I mean by that is people think that you can just take the method or, or the madness uh, that exists in Silicon Valley and just apply it, uh, you know, sight unseen to any other ecosystem and it'll just work. And it won't. That's not how that works. Brad Feld, I think, really um, uh, informed us that, among others, right, uh, and, you know, uh, Steve Case from uh, Rise of the Rest also does the same thing, which is uh, ecosystems are unique. There are characteristics and behaviors and cultures that inform that ecosystem and how it can drive itself um, uh, forward. And so how do you tap into that and then translate that back into the operational mechanics of the venture building exercise to, to do, identify that and be able to align yourself with that? Does that make sense? Yeah, that totally makes sense. I mean, I, I think that people that are trying to replicate Silicon Valley um, they shouldn't, right? To your point, they they shouldn't try to place together um, these universities and research companies and startups and technology companies, because each community brings its own uniqueness, its own flavor, its own attributes that make the companies that are formed there um, different. And, and we need different things than what the Valley is producing right now, especially. So um, just in terms of the way that you think about it though, is there any, you know, particular reason why now Atlanta and, and sort of Tel Aviv have, have popped out to you in terms of the work that you're doing? What's unique so I, I, I made a small edit to um, uh, to uh, Tio's premise about Atlanta and, and, and Israel. Um, and I understand why it was there, because that's how I started the notion of the venture studio there. You know, uh, Georgia and, and Israel both came to me, uh, Israel's um, innovation uh, authority both came to me and said they need, they need some help in Atlanta. It has since expanded beyond Israel. Uh, so uh, just FYI, so the studio itself is going to cater to more than one ecosystem uh, right up front. So initially we're talking about Israel, uh, the UK and the Netherlands. These are the three that we have identified uh, as a start. And the, the they are a factor of simply um, having the access and the appetite come from the consulates uh, and the economic development um, uh, engines of these uh, these countries. So th that's the reason why we have, we have picked those three, no other science behind that. Um, so the, the motivation there also is, is again, the same thing, right? So one of the things Atlanta, uh, uh, I think was slipping into was this whole idea that it needs to replicate Silicon Valley. Yeah, and it, it spent a good chunk of its initial, um, uh, uh, you know, um, growth, if you will, uh, around that notion, right? What, what, 
what is Silicon Valley doing right and how can we repeat it here is basically what they were, were talking about, including the politics and the policies that the city and the state were, were, were putting in place. And so the motivation to do a venture studio for the state um, is to kind of debunk that theory of, of building an ecosystem to mirror Silicon Valley and instead organically grow it around the, again, the needs, the demand-driven needs of the corporates and the workforce that is in Atlanta, right? And Georgia, right? Broadly speaking, and that really is the genesis there. Um, um, and then the other thing we wanted to be all, also be able to showcase is the correlation between an ecosystem that exists in Atlanta and Georgia and an ecosystem that we would pick uh, so Israel or you know Tel Aviv in Israel or um, uh, or Netherlands. So the conversations we are having are with um, similar venture studio type uh, entities or outfits in these ecosystems as well, right? So we're basically saying let's let's identify what what is really uh, helping startups really grow there, um, and, and then figure out how they can connect with the opportunities that exist in Atlanta and vice versa, right? So the, the opportunity here exists that, yes, we want to bring startups to Atlanta from Israel or from UK, but we want to do the other way as well. We want to be able to take startups from Atlanta's or Georgia's ecosystem and be able to push them to the UK and the Netherlands. So there's kind of a bilateral opportunity. Again, that is the reason why I'm using the consulate and um, you know, the, the state, city and state government infrastructure to be able to do that as well. That is pretty cool. And we're going to come back to that community um, in a minute because I think I'll, there's a lot that is happening right now with COVID-19 and with how the banks, especially regional banks and community banks, are responding to the crisis that um, I think is, is worth of a discussion. But before we get there, um, for those of you who are listening in, I would absolutely strongly encourage you to go check out Manoj's LinkedIn profile. And I'm going to have to actually read this out and quote it because um, it is not, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that before. And so not only did you invoke the matrix, um, you also say, and I quote, you're an anti-fragile, empathetic, disruption-seeking technocrat with a penchant for recognizing and leading communities to leverage change and chaos, variability and ambiguity to maximize innovative thinking. I can't even say it out loud with one straight sense without stopping. <laughs> Tell us what do you mean by that? And, and one thing caught my eye, the, the word empathy as a competitive challenge. Yeah, um, yeah. Advantage, right? Um, and, and they're correlated, and then we'll get to that. By the way, my English teacher probably is cringing uh, if uh, if he's uh, he's reading that or listening to this because that sentence structure is convoluted to say the least. Um, so yes, I have work to do there, um, but let me kind of break that down a little bit, right? So. Um, uh, the and this is all of that is connected. The matrix, the the idea of the matrix and uh, anti fragility uh, and empathy. I think there's a correlation. At least for me, there has been a strong correlation there, and that continues to drive me. Right, that this is the core of 
what motivates me every day and and why I do the way I what I do and what the way I do it right so anti fragility um, is um, the third leg uh, the missing third leg of what I would you know so traditionally we have talked about resilience and uh, we have talked about robustness right so uh, resilience uh, and again we all know again this is a anti fragility is a is a topic that made famous by Nicholas Taleb um uh, Nassim Taleb I don't know if you know him Nassim Taleb I mean you he's written a bunch of books um uh, anti fragility being one of them um he he's also the author of black swan um book as well um so he talks about this concept of robustness and resiliency so resiliency is the ability to recover from failure robustness is the ability to avoid failure anti fragility is the ability to thrive in failure a very distinct difference absorb and thrive in failure right and a failure or, or or any external kind of uh, you know negative factor if you will right um, and that's kind of the, the the notion that we're going after here it is within us to be able to determine the things that we need individually or as a society to be able to be anti-fragile um uh, and 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 that's really what the purpose there is about, and, and the distinction between uh, from uh, robustness and resiliency, which are usually the attributes you want to bring up uh, in a system, in a community, in an individual, in, you know, in a family, what have you, right? And the correlation with uh, uh, with uh, with uh, the matrix uh, is is exactly that and we talk about this spoon and bending the spoon and it's the whole same thing right the whole idea is there is no spoon and it, the idea is you're bending yourself you're essentially changing and bending the arc of what how you want to be able to react to the environment around you and so that's the reason why i invoke the matrix going to empathy which i really think i mean this is i mean if people ask me what i think is uh, the something that i I wish to build in terms of wealth. I mean, my consideration of wealth is if I can build my well of empathy and be able to deploy that in ways that are powerful, that I think is the best tool, armor, weapon in this, this fight for anti-fragility, right? Um, the best, I think, at least in my experience. Um, at, you know, at the, at the smallest level, if you are saying the, the best way for you to be able to determine, uh, because uh, resiliency and robustness talk about facing the, uh, the, the, the challenge. Well, in the resilience case, you face the challenge and then you recover from it, which means you fall down. Whereas in anti-fragility, you are actually talking about getting surprised by a uh, 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 you know, a, a factor, whatever it is, right? A negative factor, but not falling. Uh, you, you're basically talking about not being fragile uh, and having the ability to absorb it. And I think empathy is the tool that you use to do that, um, is to absorb. Empathy is the best absorbing material for um, being able to, to surface of anti-fragility. So that's kind of the idea of me putting that thing in the background there at the core 
how do you build anti-fragility, but then how that relates back to empathy and, and, and why empathy is a weapon and what have you. That makes sense. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. So, so let's tie those things together. Um, this morning, uh, there was a, a, a letter that Chase's CEO, Jamie Diamond, put out talking about the need to build a broader um, sort of safety net in society. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting to hear, yeah, it's interesting to hear more from corporations taking this, this time and sort of reflecting. Um, you have been at Bank of America and Merrill Lynch and Wells Fargo, and you finally escaped uh, these <laughs> corporations as, as have Theo and I. And when you think about, you know, what you just said about empathy and anti-fragility and just the way that society is today, and then you think about corporations trying to be part of building that community. What do, what do you think about, you know, their role and, and large corporations role compared to like startups and what you're doing? You know, how do we, how do we improve things going forward? Yeah. You know, I'm there, I'm, there are many, many great minds that are applying themselves to this, uh, that I know you and I, uh, you know, follow uh, espouse and what have you. If I were to take this and then make this very, very personal, I think corporations have the opportunity, and, and, and I quote a book that uh, I may have mentioned to you the first time we chatted, because uh, I, I constantly go back to that refrain, right? So the book is, uh, and again, there's another book, and it's, a, it's another philosophy, if you will, that has really struck with me, stuck with me over the years. The book is called Orbiting the Giant Hairball. Um, it's by um, a gentleman by name Gordon Mackenzie. He's not alive anymore. He used to be the head of creative for Hallmark, the card company. And he grew up in that company, 30-year career in that company, right? So he, he, he died as the, as the head of creative after years working there. And he wrote the book. And so his idea is exactly this. Any corporation, when they grow up to become a certain size, they end up becoming a giant hairball. And usually the premise is, uh, as, a, as, as an employee there, you are either uh, sucked into that hairball uh, or you're thrown out of the hairball because you don't agree with the culture or the way the work is done and delivered and how it's impacting and what have you, right? To, so to go back to your question, and you know, so the, his premise is there's a third way. There is an opportunity that for corporations and for the people who are working with those corporations to not have to do either of those two, but, but orbit the hairball, right? The hairball may be a necessity because of a large company and regulations and processes and, and you know, and what have you, and complexity. But if for, for corporations to be able to thrive um, uh, and be anti-fragile, perhaps they should build their ability to maintain people who can orbit that giant, giant hairball. What does that look like in the workplace? What does that look like for businesses? That I think is where, where we should be able to coach corporations to do from the outside in, right? Banks or otherwise. Uh, 
and and that means uh, you know for you for the corporation to be able to do i mean I, and i'm still kind of building this as we go if you will but that may be things like what should be the values that the corporation espouses that the person orbiting uh, Terrible can relate to, and, and can she or he relate to that? And if they do that, uh, then uh, what does that mean for the individual doing the work? And what does that mean for the corporation? What does that mean for the business? What does that mean for the industry? And then society and community and what have you, right? So I think that's kind of the, the my, my personal outlook is I can, and, and the reason I'm or gravitating towards that is because I can control that, right? I can personally control my, my ability now to be orbiting that hairball uh, rather than jump in there and try to figure out if I can survive <laughs> that hairball, if you will, right? So if corporations can step up and do it on their own, that would be a fantastic role for them to play, uh, uh, you know, as a platform going forward to be able to, to help, help society itself, I think, say, okay, we can coexist with corporations if this is the case, if this is, if this is the norm. You remind me of um, a story about 3M that I read recently, yeah. oh, right, yeah. on, on HBR. And uh, they they have a fascinating culture in a, in a different way of tackling innovation and keeping themselves to be able to reinvent and, and create new things. Um, and if you think about 3M, it's, it's this giant hairball, <laughs> to use your term, um, and, and to to see how they are able to continue to come up with good ideas, great ideas, um, and still survive is actually really, really interesting. Um, another one I think of is, is Microsoft, which has gone through its own path of evolution, if you will, right? Um, so it's, it's really interesting looking at different industries and looking at how they evolve over the years, but also how they respond to changes outside of their environment which brings me to um, back to banking, right? If you if you look at you know the Bank of America, um, the J.P. Morgan of the world, and all that, and then you compare and contrast it with the community banks, those that are smaller in scale, not not everywhere, but yet they serve a very particular purpose and the needs of a very particular community. Back to um, the ecosystem that you're talking about, every one of them is different in a uniqueness. Looking at how they have responded to the challenge, the needs, for example, to the PPP loans and all of those. Um, we always go back to, to the examples um, of, of Kurt at Tap Bank or Jill at Citizens Admin. Do you, how do you think the industry will change, banking industry as a whole, post-crisis, and, and the public's perception of, of community banks? W would this help bring it back? Yeah. Uh, I'm actually, you know, a, a big fan, I, and I, you know, I, and, and you know this very well. I have been tracking every single um, uh, thought process that has been going on, uh, uh, even thought, thought, uh, you know, provoking discussion that has been going on online uh, about the role of community banks. I think in the, uh, post COVID, it would be very instrumental. Uh, so let's step back a little bit there again, right? So um, there are multiple layers by which I think COVID is. Uh, going to accelerate. I'm not necessarily saying COVID is going to cold impact necessarily head on, but definitely accelerate what should have been happening, uh, you know, especially over the past decade, right? So one, so, so anything from cashless society, so there's the idea of transacting money, 
has been a challenge. Uh, you know, we, we, have, we have glossed over the uh, uh, vast infrastructure gap that exists in simply making, you know, switching, you know, flipping a switch and saying we're going to be a cashless society tomorrow. It's not, that's, you know, that's not doable, right? So there is a role for financial services to have to play in, in very scalable ways to say, now, post-COVID, can we really talk about what is needed to move into a cashless society? Uh, is it needed? Then how do we reimagine it so that it is inclusive, right? Um, uh, truly inclusive and not just something that's, uh, you know, a feather in our cap that basically, oh, we've become a cashless society. No, you haven't. Uh, uh, you know, you think you have, but uh, because, but you could, because you're ignoring 30% of the population who can't even, uh, you know, imagine uh, a life without uh, paper money. Um, on one side, right? On the other side, uh, there is the other extreme, which is, um, you know, you know, this is where community banks really kind of come into play. Because I, the, I know we probably won't get to the hardcore notion of it, but we could probably come pretty close to this idea of a barter, right? Bartering system. This, you know, and this is where community banks can facilitate us getting there uh, sooner than, rather than later. And so bartering, if we were to go back to some form of barter, which means cash does not get involved, uh, so which means paper money does not get involved, which means bartering of services or products, uh, and, you know, maybe the, there's a whole different uh, mechanism to this Reimagine what bartering looks like. I don't think J.P. Morgan Chase is going to invest money or effort or uh, talent in in getting there. I actually think community banks can have and will have the appetite and the incentive to want to try and say what could a uh, the bartering 2.0 look like or 3.0 look like. Right? Can blockchain play a role in that? Uh, in the back end. Again, I'm just I'm positing here, but that's the kind of, uh, you know, um, acceleration I think COVID and COVID type activities have, is going to really push us is, is this idea that we need to reimagine uh, the, more the most basic of things in financial services and then figure out who is best positioned to play the active role there. Again, again I'm putting words in in our mouth here, uh, and I think community banks is that is that right, and 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 just paper cashless society and bartering is just one example. I am pulling out. Uh, there could be others, and there would be others. Uh, I would imagine. Just going to say, let's let's talk a little bit about you know sort of the the future then of financial services. I mean, I came from both community banks and. Um, credit unions before I went into the belly of the beast and global Santander. And so when I, you know, think about the, the change in the industry over the last decade, I think you might agree that venture and, and venture funded uh, startups in the fintech community have really changed the way that we think about financial services for, for the greater good. Um, how do you see venture then with both what you talked about with community banking and with what you're doing in venture building, how do you predict or how do you foresee venture building a piece of that? And what what verticals and what spaces are these investments going to go into sort of in the near term? And, and what do you sort of hope for where those dollars are going to go? Very good question, right? That's interesting because uh, I, I attended a 
rather nondescript uh, meetup actually in San Francisco, Brad, um, right in your backyard. I don't know if you know this gentleman. Uh, his name is Rex Salisbury. Do you know Rex at all? He's now with, he's now fintech with uh, with uh, Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, he's been there about a year now. He lives in San Francisco. Uh, been there, uh, you know, a good chunk of his career. He was a former uh, recovering um, uh, leveraged finance guy from Bank of America, burned his suits, went to a coding boot camp, and then never looked back. Kind of, right? and, and he put one of those vests on with jeans. I think that's what they do at Andreessen. <laughs> yes, in San Francisco. <laughs> Is that the transformation? Um, yeah, one of those guys, right? Uh, great guy. You should. You know, I'm, I'm happy to connect you to him. You, you guys should, um, you should get him on uh, one of these podcasts. He's a fantastic, fantastic guy. He's you know, he's an economist, uh, you know, at, at his core, but he's doing all this tech stuff. And um, and now he's with Andreessen. So he's got a really interesting uh, perspective and voice. And uh, somebody I've connected to all these folks, so Greg knows him. In fact, he hosted Greg. Greg was on his, one of his panels. Uh, he was a moderator of one of his panels. Uh, so he hosted, you know, before he joined Andreessen, he built up... Um, uh, what is he calls it's called Cambrian Ventures now. So it's it's essentially a fintech ecosystem that he built from scratch in San Francisco. This is before fintech uh, was really a fan. And uh, I attended one of those. And and the reason I'm uh, I'm using that as the, as the as the answer to your question is there was an amazing discussion there, uh, and these young fintechs were presenting, right? And they were presenting how they wanted to challenge. Uh, these large banks or large financial services companies, insurance companies and banks uh, on, on how uh, they should imagine or reimagine what their world is going to look like five years, three, five and 10 years from then. Right. This is this is about two years ago, by the way, November 2018. Um, and one of the guys I, I, and I'll, I'll try to remember the name and I'll, I'll send it to you uh, you know offline so that you know you can probably reference that um, uh, you know when you're making the connection here this fintech company stood up and in his pitch his first slide he showed the landing page of Bank of America right and he basically said we're all talking about fintech and financial services companies are jumping into this bandwagon but even in the digital world, these banks are still telling us what we should do around money. So let me kind of unpack that a little bit again. And this is where I think the role of fintech ventures and, and, and where the future might be going. And this might actually even relate to the, you know, the, the discussion we just had with community banks, right, and, and bartering for that matter. So what he's basically pointing to the idea is that, look, Banks might say they're going digital, but they are still prescribing what it means to behave around money. They're still telling you, you need a mortgage, and here's how you do it. You need a checking account, and here's how you do it. You need a credit card or a debit card or whatever, right? You need a 513, you know, all of this stuff. The, the financial services company is still dictating and prescribing your financial behavior, the individuals, through all these means. They just use digital as a channel to get there, as an acquisition model. They've really not changed anything. So what he's saying, and I, I really, it struck with me then, and, and it's still, still with me now, which is fundamentally, how do we change that? 
and this is uh, you know I've uh, I go back to what um, the uh, founders at Cap One um, did, um, Capital One did a few years ago. And this is all like this whole idea of Copernican leap, right? I think we had this discussion on, uh, on LinkedIn or something or, or Twitter or something like that. This idea of a Copernican leap, right? You need to stop thinking, you as a financial services company, you need to stop thinking that you're the center of the universe. You have to stop that. And we have to figure out a way to help you do that. And I think venture building is that exercise. Helping from within these corporations, how do you help them unthink at the center of the universe and reimagine what the universe is looking like? There's nothing better than the venture building model to help them do that, I think, in my view, right? And that's what it is. It's that Copernican leap that you want to help them do. Truly, really, really jump that leap uh, and think of the, the the client and the customer as the the individual, uh, as the universe, center of the universe, and build it around that. And that applies, by the way, not just for financial services, as you can imagine, for practically any industry, uh, you know, going forward, I would imagine. So whichever way they are going to reimagine themselves, let's hope, A, they actually do, um, and not just shovel things around, just put themselves back in the middle, <laughs> which we have seen time and time again, or they introduce a new channel and say, oh, look, we are innovative, but yet you're following the exact same processes of the analog world. Um, but it's been great chatting with you, Manoj. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I know that we can like keep going forever and ever and ever and ever. So um, let's catch up offline as well. But thank you so much uh, for spending time with us. And thank you, um, everyone, for listening in to a new episode of One Vision.